71st Psalm. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Rescue me and deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the evil and cruel men, for you have been my hope. O sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth, from birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. The Old Testament reading this morning is from Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter. Moses convened all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances that I am addressing to you today. You shall learn them and observe them diligently. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our ancestors did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the fire. At that time I was standing between you and the Lord, and you to declare to you the words of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up on the mountain. And he said, Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the resident alien in your town, so that you may, your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. So, just a little quiz from last week. What do you think we're going to be talking about today? <laughs> the Sabbath. How about that? Our gospel lesson comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They, meaning the Pharisees, watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Lord our God, we do ask that in this time your word 
would be proclaimed with boldness, would be received with joy, and Lord, that we would be filled with hope, hope that comes only from the assurance of life and the promises you have given us. We ask these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So today, we have more from Jesus and the church authorities, this series of confrontations that we've been covering. And as we've been going through these accounts, we've been looking at both, one, what Mark tells us about Jesus, and second, why Mark would choose to include these episodes in the gospel. Thus far, what Mark has told us about Jesus is this. He introduced us to Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He told us that Jesus' coming was good news. Why is Jesus' coming good news? He was the fulfillment of God's promises to provide a Savior, to heal His people from sin and brokenness, to redeem and restore creation to its perfect and unblemished state and to establish his holy order. I mean, that's what Jesus was proclaiming with his mission statement that we read in chapter 1. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Well, doesn't that sound like good news? I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful to be saved from all the ills and injustices that we experience? I mean, can you imagine watching the news and not having your blood pressure increase in frustration? <laughs> to dream the impossible. <laughs> but wouldn't it be wonderful to be saved from all the things in your own life that embarrass, that shame, that cause you to withdraw, dying a little bit more each day? I mean, how awesome would it be to live, to actually live as God created us to be? Well, Jesus was proclaiming that kingdom. It wasn't pie in the sky by and by someday. It was time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. It's now. It's now. It's happening now. Jesus was saying that the kingdom of God had arrived in him. We can start living that kingdom life now. We are being saved now. Well, then Mark gave us example after example demonstrating Jesus' authority on earth. And each step represented a new advance for the kingdom of God that Jesus was proclaiming. Now, from this distance of two millennium, and with our familiarity with the fantastic of imagination and fiction, it may be difficult to be impressed, but you can't help but see how Mark wanted his readers to continually ask, who is this? And even though we're still early in the gospel, Mark has already shared with his readers that Jesus' life and ministry put him in conflict with the earth's authorities. And to this point, it's just the religious authorities. Jesus, manifesting the power of the kingdom of God that he had proclaimed, he has prevailed in each one of these conflicts. 
Now, for Mark's first readers, believers in Rome, this would have been a message of hope in a time when their worldly situation was discouraging. And today's text culminates five early conflicts in Capernaum where we see several things that are important for believers to understand. First, Jesus is in control. A theme throughout these controversy stories has been how Jesus had the authority to do things that only God could do. Jesus not only had the authority, he was the authority. Remember the text that we have covered, how Jesus said to the scribes who were offended because they thought Jesus had blasphemed, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he turned to the paralytic man. I tell you, stand up, take your mat, and go home. And the man did. He said to Levi Matthew, follow me. And Levi dropped everything and followed him. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, have you never read? And they had no answer. And he responded, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but it, it does bear repeating here. The Pharisees get a lot of bad press in the Gospels. I mean, they were mistaken to be sure. That said, it is too simplistic to discount them and look down our noses at them as if we're not prone to the same error. I mean, we miss the radical nature of Jesus' self-revelation if we reduce the Pharisees to cartoon villains. I mean, they were not ill-intentioned ne'er-do-wells or criminal masterminds thwarted by superhero Jesus. These were sincere Jewish believers trying to be faithful to the covenant God had established at Sinai. They were urging their peers to do the same, believing that God would act to restore Israel to a privileged place if only the people would repent and commit themselves to acting like God required. They looked around, and the Roman occupation being the most obvious case in point, and they saw how disobedience to God led to disastrous consequences. Now, I want you to consider these two texts from the Old, the Old Testament. From Deuteronomy 30, Moses says to them, You see, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I'm commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in His ways, observing His commandments, decrees, and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving your, the Lord your God, obeying Him, and holding fast to Him. 
For that means life to you and length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Life, death. Those are your two choices. Well, for those of you who know the history of Israel, you know they went into a pattern of disbelief, dishonor, repentance, restoration. And round and round and round they went. Well, after King David, after King Solomon, in the time of the prophets, the book of Isaiah begins this way. The vision of Isaiah, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil, children who deal corruptly, who have forsaken the Lord, who have despised the Holy One of Israel, who are utterly estranged. Why do you seek further beatings? Why do you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and bleeding wounds. They haven't been drained or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your very presence. Aliens devour your land. It's desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Come now, let's argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and you rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You get the point? Life, death. Obey the covenant, things go well disobey the law, and Israel suffers. Now, the Pharisees understood their role to be guardians of the covenant. They understood it was their job to spot frauds and con men. I mean, you know people were coming to them as Jesus was, was getting famous, and they're asking, well, what do you think? Is this guy Jesus the real deal or what? And what would you have said? In Acts chapter 5, this is after the resurrection, we get this debate in the council, but even, if, even though it's off in time, it gives a history that would have been forefront in the Pharisees' minds. Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up and ordered the men, this is Peter and John, to be put outside for a short time. And then he said to the council, fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. And after him, Jesus, Judas the Galilean rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. In other words, miracle workers had shown up before only to prove to be false prophets and charlatans. 
So here comes Jesus. And he didn't do things the way they understood Scripture or how they had come to know them by tradition. He taught with authority, and he applied Scripture differently than they had ever known. And the Pharisees, the supposed experts, found themselves in completely unfamiliar territory. Instead of recognizing what was happening, they turned and they tried to protect the status quo. Out of fear, they began to preserve the very outcome that they had prayed that God would deliver them from. Anybody here ever do that? Right? They went out and conspired to destroy the very Savior that they had prayed God would provide. The other thing to note here is, is that the Pharisees were kind of hoisted on their own petard, thinking they were in control. I mean, they had come to the synagogue that morning to witness something so that they might accuse him. And then Jesus confronts them with a question, and they're silent. They can't answer it. Not only could they not accuse Jesus, they couldn't see a way out when he turned the tables. Jesus drove the action on this Sabbath day. Jesus entered the synagogue. The Pharisees watched. Jesus commanded the man to come forward. The Pharisees watched. Jesus asked the Pharisees a question. They didn't answer. They just watched. And he said, stretch out your hand. And then the Pharisees left. Jesus always is in control. I mean, he could have avoided this entire confrontation. He could have healed the man the next day. Yet he chose not to be controlled by the Pharisees, by their expectations, by tradition, or by anything else. Now consider what Jesus revealed here about the kingdom of God. According to Mark, the man with the withered hand was at the entrance of the synagogue, the closest that someone with a defect could get to the holiest part of the worship space. Those with defects or who were unclean were not welcome into the center of the worship area. When Jesus commanded the man to come forward, he commanded him to come to the center of an area that was surrounded by benches, where by law, only those without defect or impurity could sit. Jesus called the man to the center of the center, to the holy of the holies, and then removed the man's defect. The man's obedience, that is, responding to the call of the Holy One resulted in a transformation that brought the man from exclusion to embrace. He didn't approach Jesus because he was perfect. He approached Jesus because Jesus called him forward to make him perfect. So how do you approach Jesus? Are you waiting until you get it all right before you say, okay, Jesus, here I am? Are you hoping that Jesus doesn't come around until you have your act together? If so, you're mistaking who's in control. It's not you. It's Jesus. 
One of the most fascinating questions I ever asked in a Bible study setting was, do you want Jesus to return? That's different than, do you expect Jesus to return? The question is, do you want Jesus to return? Are you looking forward to it? Or do you kind of hope he waits a little bit longer, right? Some of the people in the Bible study said, well, you know, maybe not right now. I'd like to see my kids, or I'd like to do, or I'm ashamed of something and don't want to have to face him with it. Now, I'm not saying that having hopes for kids or having goals or wanting to make changes are bad things. What I am saying is when those things take priority over our desire to be face-to-face with Jesus, we have to take a hard look. Because Mark drew drew that distinction between the man with the withered hand and the Pharisees. The man with the withered hand heard Jesus' call to come and obeyed, leading to life. The Pharisees heard that same call, rejected it, and moved towards darkness. The Pharisees missed the point. And missing the point often reveals a hard heart. And hard hearts, unfortunately, are more often found in churches than they are outside of churches. I want you to remember the Pharisees were considered good church people. In fact, they competed with each other to be the most righteous in their own eyes. Hard hearts generally follow self-righteousness. It's the condition where we forget who is God. Now, many believers will have this experience. They have an encounter with the living God. They receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. They rejoice. They want to tell everybody what's happened to them. They can't understand why everybody else isn't as excited. And then about a year later, they've become church people. The joy has drained out of them. I mean, first, they started to feel guilty because other people didn't share their joy. Second, they began to wonder if they really understood what all that joy was about. And then third, they get comfortable being a church attender. The excitement's not there, but they think, you know, I'm not that bad a person. I do go to church, and we do some good stuff. Things are all right. Be careful. That's the first part of the slippery slope down into self-righteousness when we forget who is God and we forget that we need God and we stop seeking after God, we begin building that wall around our heart that gets very hard very quickly. We gradually begin trying to protect God from other people's sin. We take on the responsibility for making judgments for God, Condemning others for their failures while quietly hoping that God will overlook our little indiscretions. We can get hard hearts as individuals. We can get hard hearts as congregations. We can get hard hearts as people. Hard hearts are condemning. Tender hearts are inviting. Hard hearts judge first, then dismiss. Tender hearts are compassionate first, and then walk alongside to healing. Hard hearts rely on their own understanding. Tender hearts 
look to God. Now, when God confronts hard hearts that are unwilling to break, God gets angry. You see it in our text. Jesus looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart. Now, think about this. Jesus asked them a question and saw them sitting there in silence, not wanting to engage the truth. He looked around at them. Now, I imagine this was more than just a little uncomfortable. This was more than just a glance. I think he waited and he let that silence sink in. There is judgment in that silence. Jesus is angry at the Pharisees' erroneous self-righteousness and grieved at the hardness of their hearts. So how is your heart? Well, here we are, second week of a sermon regarding controversy about the Sabbath, and many of you still may be wondering, well, what can we do on the Sabbath? I still don't know, right? My response is going to remain the same. How is your walk with Jesus? It's the right question because here's the thing. These encounters aren't really about the Sabbath. Sabbath is a presenting issue. The real issue in these encounters involves the question, who is Jesus? All these Capernaum events were about the character of God, and Mark used these episodes to point to the very personal nature of God. For the Pharisees, Sabbath is a tangible indication of Israel's status as God's chosen people. Observing the Sabbath made them different. But in their efforts to preserve their part of the covenant with God, they had wandered away from relating to God. That is, they remembered the law, but they forgot the lawgiver. For Christians, confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior is what marks us as being different. Following Jesus is the indicator of being a child of God. It's not something we do It's something we are. We are children of God because God has adopted us. And you see the very difference in this text. Pharisees had come to see Jesus do something that would form the basis of an accusation against him. The man with the withered hand was just standing there, observing the law. And when he heard Jesus' call, he obeyed. He recognized God's voice. The Pharisees did not. And there's irony in this confrontation. Jesus healing the man's withered hand didn't violate Sabbath. It actually fulfilled the purpose of Sabbath. The Sabbath was meant to be restorative, recreative, healing. God created the Sabbath for the benefit of mankind, Jesus said, and not mankind to serve the Sabbath. Sabbath wasn't meant for rigid passivity. It was made for creative passivity. In other words, God may have rested on the seventh day, but God's not really passive on Sabbath. He restores our souls. He moves in us and transforms us. 
The Sabbath is really God's call to give Him room to work in our lives. Do you have time for God to work in your life? Do you give Him that time, or are you too busy? Jesus uses Sabbath to heal a man, to restore him, to bring him back to life. Jesus didn't just heal the man's hand. He brought wholesomeness, wholeness, and a new life in relationship with God, an indication of this age of salvation that Jesus was proclaiming. In that sense, Jesus saved the man. Are you willing to have God work on your life? Every week I have people ask me to pray. And so if, you're, if that's the case, please don't be surprised when you hear me ask, what is it you would like Jesus to do for you? Now, I'm not peddling snake oil, and I'm not promising an instant cure-all. But it's a clarifying question. It's a Sabbath question. What is it you want God to do in your life? Do you need healing for something that has withered in your life? Give Jesus room to work. Do you need reconciliation with someone else? Give Jesus room to work. Do struggles with money cause you to forget about God? Give God room to work in your life. Whatever it is, sin, sorrow, brokenness, loneliness, struggles of any sort, the point is, will you give Jesus room in your life to deal with whatever it is? The healing on the Sabbath is consistent with the message that Jesus was proclaiming in his preaching and teaching. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand, is near. Repent and believe in the gospel. The healing is a manifestation of the dawning of that new day in the kingdom of God. And the Pharisees walked out. We're still living into the reality of the kingdom of God, and we'll only see it fully when Jesus returns. Stay in it. Don't walk out. As we wrap up this morning, I want you to recognize that Mark was telling believers a number of very powerful things about Jesus. First, Jesus is in control. He knew what he was doing. He chose the path he took. He came for the purpose of redeeming you and redeeming me and calling us to follow him. And second, know that following Jesus will lead to conflict with many kinds, different kinds of authorities, but those authorities will always be secondary to him. Jesus prevails over hard hearts. And finally, Jesus doesn't break Scripture. He fulfills it. He said to the man with the withered hand, come forward. He said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. When you leave this place today, make room for God to work healing and restoration in your life. Amen.
friends, the verses are important, but that's what I want you to go out with. <laughs> All right? Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. What great news that is. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest, remain, and abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen.